Hey, just one thing. We have a family moment. If you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. Uh, this isn't really pertaining to you in that sense. Uh, this is something that we've been working at Bergen Park. I shared with you last week that five years ago, if you can imagine this, five years ago, there's about 80 people that had a vision, a vision of a church on this property. And those 80 people, five years ago, all wrote down on a piece of paper what they were going to contribute financially to make that possible. And it's amazing, those 80 people just laid that foundation and allowed this church to be built, and now what we're doing is we're refinancing that mortgage. And we talked about last week that as a family, we want to invest in reducing the principal by August so that we can begin to pay down that mortgage. Now, some of you may have gotten this. We may not have done a great job passing these out. It's okay. You can get one on the way out. Uh, You may have gotten one of these cards when you came in, and on there it says uh, that I want to contribute to that principal. If that's something the Lord wants you to do, you can fill that out and place it in those uh, boxes, our giving. we got to fix that door. We're going to fix that. Don't worry about that. We we got that. Sandy, we got it. Sorry. We got that. We're going to fix that. But you can write on there what you'd like to give. That's going to go to our treasurer. You know, none of us, none of the elders' leadership, we do not know what you give. That's a commitment we have because we don't want that to influence us because we're human. And it does. Let's be honest. That can influence us. But we will not know what you write down. Whatever you write down, it goes just simply to the treasure. It's between you and the Lord. And so between now and August, when we refinance that loan, we want to complete that work that those 80 people set forth to do to allow this building to be built and then to eliminate this debt. Now, in the coming months, we're going to be sharing our plan to do that over the next seven years. But that's our goal right now because God desires through this facility and through us that we would be a light in this community. What that means is we got to love each other. It starts with loving each other well, loving God well, loving each other well, and in loving each other well, that enables us to go out and to express that love to others. And so that's where we are. So family moment is over. It's okay. That's that's what we're going to do. And so if you want to grab a Bible, there are some Bibles in front of you. We're going to be in Psalm 91. In the summertime, what we like to do is to kind of walk through the psalms and take a a number of different psalms that we're going to walk through. This Sunday we're looking at Psalm 91. And here's the picture for that. Psalm 91 describes the heart in trial. What does it look like to go through trial and difficulty in a way that you're really relying upon God? Now, my first church was south of Boston when I was in my 20s. It was in the inner city, south of Boston, 20-year-old kid, no idea what I'm doing. And I remember in that church, there was a lot of people that worried. Now, the church was a little bit older, and so we had Sunday morning, we had Wednesday night, we had Sunday night. We did all the services during the week. And many of the people in the church, I would hear their prayers, and they were pretty much filled with anxiety, filled with worry, worry about their health, their future, their kids, the nation, all of those things. And I remember as a 20-year-old, right? I'm not going to be like that. As I get older, I refuse to worry. I refuse to give any anxiety. Because, see, in my youthful, youthful optimism, here's what I assumed. The things that have happened to them won't happen to me. Because, see, I'm smart enough. I'm going to avoid them. I'm going to plan well. I'm going to set things out, and those things aren't going to happen. Well, what happened from my 20s, now I'm in my 40s, some of those things started happening. Some of those tragedies, difficulties, unexpected events came into my life, and I realized I have zero control to stop these things from happening. 
And that anxiety started to creep in. And I sort of remind myself of some of the prayers of the past and the prayers that people had prayed. And how do we respond when suffering, difficulty comes into our life? And then what's God's role in the midst of that? Because there was a story I heard, and this was actually in a message on Psalm 91. This was years ago. It was a story about some soldiers in World War I. They were all from the same hometown in Maine. And their moms were committed to Christ, and every morning they'd get up and they'd pray through Psalm 91. And so these soldiers out in World War I, they didn't know where they were. These moms would get up, they would pray for their sons. And the story this pastor told was every single one of those men came home completely unscathed. Now, whether that happened or not, I don't know. Sometimes pastor stories can be a little, you know, a little, little out there. But here's what I'm asking as we jump into that. Is that what this psalm promises? If we trust God, is God saying to us, nothing bad will happen to us? That if I trust him, God is going to allow me to escape evil, to escape disease, to escape harm, difficulty. Is that a promise that God makes? Because some people will come to Psalm 91, and that's what they'll take from it. And in fact, a very famous person... The devil took this psalm and actually came out with that conclusion to try to trip up Jesus to say, hey, if God doesn't save you, if he doesn't rescue you, then God cannot be trusted. And so let's jump into Psalm 91. We're going to do three things. Ask, what is it saying? Because when you jump into a difficult text, sometimes you just need to know what's it saying. Then we need to say, well, what does that mean? And then how do we apply that? So real basic, what is it saying? What does that mean for us today, and then how do we apply it? So Psalm 91, let's pick it up in verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions. Under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the air that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look in, with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me ask for God's help. Lord, I thank you that you use imperfect human beings. Lord, we are fallible. Uh, we are weak at times. We project strength, but internally as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
There are times we fear evil because we forget who you are. And, Father, we forget that you are with us. So I want to ask in Jesus' name, would you allow the truth of this ancient text that's revealed through Scripture but ultimately revealed through Jesus Christ, would it illuminate our hearts? Would it give us a greater picture of who you are? And then when trials come, Father, anchor our heart, anchor our soul so that we might respond to you in a way that leads to trust, dependency, and a deeper faith in you. Father, guide us in this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this text seems to be saying, if you trust God, nothing bad will happen to you. No danger. Come near your tent. No arrow that flies by day. Pestilence at night, day, night, morning. Whenever it is, nothing bad is going to happen to you. If you trust God, everything's going to go well. And I'm sure everyone in this room would say, that's my life. That's the trajectory of my life. That's been my experience with Christ and coming to faith. Everything has gone well. There's been no deadly pestilence, whatever that is. Arrows that fly by day and the night. No darkness, no evil has befalled me. Not even my toe being stubbed against a stone. It seems to say if you trust God, nothing bad will happen, which means if you're not trusting God, Bad stuff's going to happen. And if bad stuff's happening, that's because you're not trusting him. So we need to ask the question, first of all, what does it say? And what it's really teaching us is about who God is when you're going through trial. It is vital. And I'll tell you from my perspective, I have made some wrong assumptions about people when I'm going through trials. Let alone terrible assumptions about God when I go through trials. And the first thing he wants to lay down as a foundation of this home, this faith that we're building, is who is God when I endure suffering and difficulty? So notice the descriptions. Verses 1 through 4 are really just laying out who he is. And so watch this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. One of the things that's interesting, just stop for a moment, is this one of the rare psalms that's written from the perspective of the first person. When you see you in this psalm, it's not you plural, which is often the case in the psalms. It's you singular. So this is one individual speaking to God, and then God's speaking to that individual, and they're going through tragedy and difficulty, and they're responding to God in the midst of that. So he says, I will say to the Lord, you are my refuge, you are my fortress, you are my God in whom I trust. For here is who God is. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the deadly pestilence. So God is a shelter. He is a shade. He is a fortress. God is a deliverer. And I was thinking about this. You know, shelter is vitally important. Often I have to seek shelter every time I go out on a hike because I don't go out early enough. And you know, in this area around 2 o'clock, it seems like this thunderstorm comes by. You feel the electricity in the rocks around you. Have you ever experienced that? Not a good place to be. And I look for a place of shelter. Now, the thing I know about shelter is it's safe, but it's not comfortable. It's secure, but it doesn't bring comfort in my life. It simply brings safety. And beyond that, he describes God as a shadow, which means shade. Now, we don't think a lot about shadow and shade here because it's not too hot, but in two weeks, I'm going to Texas for vacation in July. I'm leaving Evergreen and going to Texas for three weeks of vacation in July. Now, in Texas, you need some shadow, you need some shade. When that little puff of cloud goes by, you enjoy it because you know the sun can mean death. 
in an arid, hot climate, just finding that little space of cool, that little covering can be actually the difference between life and death. And so someone reading this in an arid climate in a desert would say, okay, that's who God is. That here I am burning from the heat, about to die from exhaustion, and God comes through, and he is like that cool breeze, that shadow that comes over me and protects me in the heat of the moment. Now, here's the main metaphor. Verse 4 is the main metaphor that he's using to describe who God is. And listen to the way he's described here. It says in verse 4, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield. Now, notice it's God's faithfulness that shields you. Thank God for that. It's not my faithfulness that protects me. It's the faithfulness of God because the reality is there's a lot of moments where my faithfulness is lacking. Because when the hot days come, the the moments where there is pressure and I'm seeking comfort, I don't want just shelter right here, God. I don't want the cool of the day. I don't want the cloud. I want comfort. And what we start to do is our heart runs towards things we really worship. In those moments of difficulty, your heart starts to run towards the things we worship, the things that we identify as safety, comfort. Where does your heart go? I think the first place mine, as I said, goes is to a false view of God. God doesn't love me. God is not with me. Maybe I don't even belong to him. And here's the image he wants us to have, because most of the images... In the Old Testament and in the New Testament are masculine images of God. God's a warrior. You know, God's a king. He's a father. This image is an image of a mother bird. Because, see, that's the image. You don't need a warrior in times of trouble. A father may be good, but sometimes moms know how to care when their child is going through pain and difficulty. They know how to apply love, mercy, compassion in a way that meets the need of the child, that calms the child down. And he's saying, God, in the midst of trouble, is like a mother bird with her wings covering her chicks. That's an image of God. Because, see, what we tend to believe, and you know this in the human heart, is if I'm going through suffering, God's distant. He's on another galaxy. He's working on another planet. He has left us, and I am utterly alone in this place of suffering. And he's saying, that's not where God is. I know that's where my feelings take me. It's where my physical experience takes me. But spiritually, God is with us. And you know the psalm. It's the 23rd psalm. When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what's the most important thing? He is with you. He's saying in the midst of trial, you have to know who God is. You have to know that he's with you. And you have to see this image of a mother bird that seeks to comfort and to care for her young. Now, sometimes that bird is an eagle. And when you are being attacked, having strength associated with that bird is is pretty awesome. Now, I haven't quite seen an eagle yet here in Evergreen. I see pictures of them. Somebody takes these pictures. You see that? Down near the lake, and you see them on Facebook and social media, these beautiful images of these eagles. Well, eagles' wings represent strength, but it also represents comfort and shelter. That's God's attitude towards us. Now, the storyline that came to my mind this week was the March of the Penguins. Have you seen that? I think they got a second one coming out, something like that. Second March of the Penguins, they keep doing it. If you've seen that, it's crazy that these penguins will walk 70 miles. I don't know why they got to go 70. Couldn't they just go 20, 30? 
70 miles, temperatures negative 80 degrees, simply to give birth to this little chick. First, they protect the eggs, and I'm not sure if it's the mom, the dad, whichever. They just kind of trade off. There's a lot of equality right there. And one will sit there with that egg beneath its fat and above its feet until that egg is warm enough that it starts to hatch. And then when it hatches, it's not done. I think somebody trades off. They walk three more months back to the ocean to get food. Somebody's got to tell them there's food a lot closer. And they come back, and they're caring for these young and sacrificing their life because by the time they're done with that three-month period, they're, they're thin, they're worn out, all in service to this child. And that's the image that the psalmist is giving us. That's God's attitude towards us. Now, it's not our experience. It's, it's definitely not our experience. It's not our belief. But that is how God describes himself when we go through trial. Now, in verses 5, 6, and 7, these are the trials that, that he's saying God will protect us from. And they're actually intended to be a little lavish, extreme, shocking. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction at new day. Some say that this is a king. Because that's usually what a king's worried about, pestilence upon his people. Things that strike in the night, you wake up and half the community is gone. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. These are extremes. But he takes from the extreme and he goes down to the simplicity of just simple evil befalling you in verse 10. And he says, no evil We're not just talking about arrows by day, no deadly pestilence, no 10,000 at your right hand. But not even evil will be allowed to approach you. No plague will come near your tent. And tents aren't great places of protection against deadly pestilence, against arrows, against the terror of night. He's saying you're in a vulnerable place, and yet not even evil will touch you. And then verse 11, he takes it even to a greater extreme. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, how does that promise compare to your experience? Have you struck your foot against a stone? Did the angels, where were the angels in that moment? Now, this is a messianic psalm, which means it's a psalm that describes the coming of Jesus. And the devil actually uses this in attacking Jesus. But when you hear the language, it's absolute. Nothing bad will happen to you. Not from the greatest of things, from disaster, from war. Not from 10,000. They may wipe out at your left and your right, 1,000. Nothing's going to come to you. Not even evil. You will not even strike your foot again. That's simply what it says. And you can take that and say, if I trust God, God will not allow anything to happen to me that's bad. And the truth is, eventually you're going to get frustrated with God or you're going to fall in despair over yourself. Because bad things happen. So what does this mean? Well, when you read the Bible, you can't simply read one passage. You've got to take the storyline. The Bible's a story. And the story matters. Sometimes we like to take little verses out, right, from different places. But realize, those, just like your life, there are things people told you when you were 10, 20, 30, 
Well, the Bible is the same way. It's a story of God's salvation and what he's done to rescue us from the things that can truly destroy us. And in this storyline, he's showing us who he is, but we also see how to apply this to our life. So what does this mean? Well, the first place you need to go to is just simply the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, does God say, if you trust me, nothing bad will happen? We think of the way that God treats his own people. He says to Abraham, Abraham, hey, leave all your stuff. I know you're a wealthy dude. You've established yourself in life. You've got life set. But I want you to leave all the things that are comfortable behind. I want you to go to Ur the Chaldees. He's like, I don't have a map for that. He didn't even know where that is. And I want you to come and to follow me. God, I'm looking for comfort here. I want more than a tent to guide me. God, this is not my vision. And then you think of Job. Job is actually described as a man that really trusted God. That's his credit. He said, this is a man that loves God and trusts God. And Satan comes and says, yeah, but if you mess his life up, he's not going to love you anymore. Meaning, Job's in it for Job. Job's in it for Job. And if you mess his life up, he's not going to love you anymore. And so we see this story in Job, a man that trusted God and yet deadly pestilence. Arrows flew by day, thousands at his right hand. Everything this psalm describes really did happen to him. And then he had the best friends in the world. There's nothing like a great friend alongside you to say, see, it's your fault. Not even his wife was a comfort in that moment. Because when you're going through that kind of stress, I mean, it just puts agitation in relationships, doesn't it? And his friend said, you know, Job, I'm going to take this view of Psalm 91. I'm going to say you're not trusting God because bad things are happening. If you would just repent, then God would change everything that's going on. And Job says, I haven't done anything. And it's interesting, at the end of the story, if you've read that, God shows up. And he shows up in a storm, in a windstorm, and essentially says to Job's friends, you are speaking lies about me. Because the interpretation that if you simply trust him, everything's going to go well, and if you're not trusting him, things will go bad, that's called karma. It's not the gospel. It's not true. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, he described it himself. He says, I've said these things to you, John 16, 33, that in me you may have peace. So notice the peace is in him. It's not in how well things go. It's not in how good life is. The peace is in Jesus because, see, in the world, you're going to run into tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The invitation to follow Jesus is to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But the peace is in me. So stop looking for peace in the world and circumstances and running to comfort and finding and building my own shelter. He's saying as you go through life, you've got to shelter in me. You've got to hide in me. You've got to rest in me. I have to be in who I am in my character like a mother bird that is hovering over your darkness, hovering over your shame, your guilt, your pain. You've got to see me loving you like that. You know, Satan, as I said before, he loves to take this interpretation of Psalm 91 because he said to Jesus, you know what, Jesus? If you trust God, you're not going to strike your foot against the stone because you're going to have these angels. This is in Luke chapter 4, lifting you up. In Luke 4, verse 11, and 10 and 11, it says, For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You know, I think Shakespeare said it best. The devil loves to quote Scripture. 
Because, see, if he can just get you to believe a, a little, there's always a little bit of truth in that, too. Just a little bit of truth. To see the little bit of truth, but say to you, if you're faithful to God, God is going to take care of you. So if you're suffering, that means God has abandoned you. And he's saying to Jesus, simply abandon God. Because if you're suffering right now, that means God's not good. And he does not love you. What did Jesus do? I'll tell you, all he could do is run to a shelter. He said, he said you do not test the Lord. He went back to Scripture. Because, see, he had nothing to give. Because when you're suffering, you've got nothing to give. At least I don't. I don't have a lot of energy. I don't have a lot of willpower in those moments. And he relied himself on who God is. And he said, you know what? I understand that right now this looks bad. But this is who God is. This is what he's doing. We've got to fix that. We're going to fix that. One more story, just quickly. In, in Genesis chapter 50, there's a great illustration of this. It's the story of Joseph, but it really begins with this guy, Jacob. And Jacob had a big family. I mean, talk about a big family, 12 boys. I mean, that's, that's got to be crazy at dinner time. 12 boys, and his favorite was Joseph. And Jacob was an idiot. As a father, absolute idiot, because he let every one of those 11 boys know, Joseph is my favorite. So who do you think got beat up? You know, who do you think got his stuff stolen, made fun of, kicked in the, whatever it is? It was Joseph, because see, his parents put so much love and favoritism. Maybe you grew up in that home. You know the pain of being left behind by your parents. One child is favored. They get the opportunities you did not. Well, that was Joseph. And Joseph became what children like that become, brats, spoiled, arrogant, to the extent that he would go to his brothers and say, hey, listen, I had a dream. i got to tell you about this, guys. It's awesome. I was successful, and you guys were all worshiping me, and I had the titles, and I had the robes, and your stuff was bowing to my stuff because, see, I'm awesome, and I'm amazing, and doggone it, people like me. That's Joseph, right? What did his brothers do? Well, they did what they probably would have done to you. They, they took him to the woodshed, which was called Egypt. They threw him in a pit. They told his father he's dead. Let him go. He's gone. And what happens to this child? Well, he's sold off into Egypt, and then he gets falsely accused. Because he's falsely accused, he's thrown into prison. And we don't know how long he was there, but I can guarantee you in that time he cried out to God. I can guarantee you in those moments, I mean, because that's where you cry out when you're in prison in a dungeon and it's dark and it's, I got no more resources and no one's watching out for me. I need that bird to hover over me. God, be that bird. Surround me with your wings. And what happened during that time? Let's say 10 years, 20 years. Joseph heard nothing. Nothing. At least as far as we know, I mean, maybe there's a passage that's been removed, but we, we don't have it. He received nothing. But out of that experience, what happened is Joseph started to rise. Because of the struggle he went through, he became a humble man and a decisive and effective leader. To the extent that when his brothers showed up, he didn't say, hey, guys, my stuff's better than your stuff. He said to his brothers, I know what you did to me. I know how you abused me. I know how you called me names. And that stuff still hurts, guys. But the reality is what you intended to harm me God has used in my life to transform me. Let me ask you, what were the arrows in Joseph's life? Were they literal arrows? Or was it the favoritism of his father? 
that if he was allowed to walk in that, he would have become a rotten man. Was it not the accusations of his brothers? If he was allowed to stay in that situation, if he had not been thrown into prison, if he had not gone through that, his family would have been destroyed by the fighting within. Joseph himself would have been a broken man, self-centered, probably ran into a lot of troubles in life, really arrogant in the way that he dealt with things. God changed his life by allowing Joseph to walk through situations that when he came out of those situations, he could say, you know, I see what God has done. I don't want to walk back through that. That was evil. It was horrible. It was miserable. But look at where I am today. What you intended for evil, God has used in my life for good. You know, there's a a story. I I watched this on YouTube. uh, I think it was this week. Have you seen those uh, cardboard testimonies? I actually did one of those at my last church. You, You write on there kind of your struggle. Maybe it's overeating or maybe it's some kind of addiction. You write that on the front and then you flip it. And it says, set free or redeemed, child of God, something like that. Kind of neat way to do that. Well, there's this story. There's this woman that had inoperable breast cancer. And so she wrote that on the front of, she walks up and she's got that inoperable, nothing we can do. Then this man walks up. You don't know who he is. And it said, atheist. Now, he turns his over first. Happened to turn out that this was the doctor that cared for her. And it said, came to faith through her hope in Christ. And then she turns that card over and says, it was worth it. She got to see the good that Joseph saw. She got to see. Now, it doesn't mean that her life is better. She's still got breast cancer. She's making a choice to see things through the lens of who God is and what he can do. Her life is still in danger. It's not better. But in him, she has shelter. In him, she has truth. In God, she has a comforter. She can see the wings of the Father coming around her and not changing the arrows that fly by day or the evil that's done to her, but rather knowing I am in the safest place I can be because God will use this for his glory. You know, the gospel promises you something that no one else will promise, and that's that God has entered into our suffering. The only, the only religion that suggests that God would become a human being, and not just any human being, but a servant. And not to care for the elite among us, but to care for those who would reject him, those that, who would abandon him. That on the cross, he'd say, Father, they know what that not they do, but yet every single one of them was deliberately doing and rejecting and mocking. And Jesus Christ, God himself, was crucified Even if you don't believe that concept, the idea is beyond anything we could imagine. That God himself would enter into our suffering and be willing to come among us. One of the places, just quickly, I want to turn to is is Luke chapter 21. Because see, in Luke 21, Jesus is speaking and he's taking this idea of Psalm 91. He's applying it to his disciples in verses 16 and 18. And he's telling them, I'm I'm about to leave. I'm getting out of here, guys. But when I go, things are going to go rotten for you. Things are going to go south. And here's what he says to his disciples, verse 16, Luke 21. You will be delivered up even by your parents, by brothers, sisters, relatives, friends, and some, some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now look at the next verse. How is that possible? But... Not a hair on your head will perish. 
Now, I would assume if I'm dead, my hair's dead. If my parents hate me, my hair is, is, is rotten. How can he say, on the one hand, you're going to be rejected, you're going to be put to death, and yet you're not going to be harmed? Because he says in verse 18, here's what I'm going to produce. Uh, actually, verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your life. Now, it seems kind of veiled. The word endurance is the word patience. It means long-suffering. By trusting in me, as you go through difficulty, I am going to bring out gold. I'm going to refine you. You're going to find what life's about. Because what happens? Here's what happens in ministry. I've seen this often for pastors. Ministry either drives you to Jesus or drives you to pretend like you're with Jesus. If you've seen, if you've been in churches and you've kind of felt that something's wrong here, that's because ministry does one of two things. It either causes you to run to Jesus and depend upon him because the reality is I can't do this, guys. I'm not that good. I'm not that smart. I can't make all of you happy. There's no way. And the truth is I don't want to offend anyone. The gospel is offensive. It either drives you to him or it causes you to become a pretender and a performer for him. And I think the same is true about suffering in life. It either drives you to him, which means you find out that Jesus really can be my life. Jesus really can be my peace. Jesus really can be my hope. You don't know that until he is what you got. Or it'll drive you to perform and pretend that Jesus is enough. And on the inside, you're going to be crying out. But on the outside, you're wearing a mask because you're saying he's good enough. And all he's saying to you is, I'm with you. I'm with you. What does this mean? It doesn't mean that God isn't going to allow difficult things to happen. It means, as the scripture says, that God will use the evil and take his power to bring out of the evil something, something that is better for having gone through it. Something better is going to come. Here's how Tolkien, you know J.R. Tolkien, I guess that movie's out. i got to see that when it comes out. It's coming out on, I think, I think it's this summer it's going to come out on the DVD. That's what I'm looking for. But Tolkien said, there is the great eucatastrophe. Have you heard that word? Eucatastrophe. You know what a catastrophe is, right? It's when someone calls and they give you bad news because you're having a good day. The good goes bad. Well, eucatastrophe is the bad becomes good. That's what happened to Frodo, right? Frodo, it's bad. Carrying the ring was bad. <laughs> Messed him up. Gollum. But throwing it in, sacrificing his life brought freedom for Mordor, right? The elves, and you're like, some people are like, what? What is this guy talking about? <laughs> that is a picture of the gospel. What happened in the death of Jesus? Was it good? No. It seemed that evil won. I mean, we are on the other side of the story, so I know we're watching it with confidence, but these guys are living it. And there is no, there is the sun is blasting, there is no tent, there is pestilence, there is death. The disciples are looking around saying, this is the end of the world. It literally felt like the moon had turned to darkness, the sun had turned, the waters had turned to blood. It was, it was cataclysmic. But what did God do? Out of the darkness, out of complete loss where all evil seemed to have won, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and declared victory over evil. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that the things that have happened to you are not evil. It means that God is now using all of his power to take the evil that's come into your life and to use that in a way that transforms us into the likeness of Christ, into the likeness of God, to give us a strength and a power. See, here's what that looks like. You know, there's one place 
And we got to kind of conclude this, but at the end of the passage, you'll see that God says he is with you in trouble. He will satisfy your life, give you long life. Well, there's one place in the New Testament where Jesus identifies with this image in Psalm 91, and he calls himself a mother bird, desiring to put her wings around her children. One place. And it's in, it's in Matthew chapter 23. We'll close with this verse, Matthew 23. Matthew 23, Jesus is coming for the last week of his life. He's coming to Jerusalem, and he's looking at the city. These are people he loves, and yet these are people he knows are going to reject him, mock him, crucify him. And Jesus looks at those that are going to reject him, and he says in Matthew 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to it. How often. Realize, these are not loving children. These are violent people that want to reject him. I, I want to gather you as children together as, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing. Now realize, what does he want to protect them from? See, they're about to crucify him. They're about to reject him and he's saying, even though you're rejecting me, I want to protect you. See, what the cross is is while we're yet sinners, while I rejected God, God covered me. That I didn't receive in myself the wrath of God because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus looks upon our worst day, our worst moment, our worst heart, and he says to us, I want to cover you with my wings so that the judgment of God falls on me and you can walk out free. And what do I mean by free? Free as if you just took on yourself the identity of Jesus. The Father sees you and loves you as he loves his son. That's the goodness of the gospel. You are as secure as Jesus is with God. And you cannot lose it because it's nothing you won by your own effort, and therefore it's nothing you can lose by your effort. It is a free gift of God's grace. Here's the last story. There's a story of some park rangers that were going through this forest after a wildfire had passed through. And as they're surveying the damage, they notice this charred mess at the base of a tree, and they realize that this charred mess was once a nest. It was at some time up in the tree, but during the fire, it had fallen, and there was a bird, and it was just simply charred by the heat and the fire. One of the park rangers came up and knocked it over, and out from under that bird came these chicks. That this bird knew what was coming, and like a mother... You moms are amazing. You sacrifice beyond anything your children deserve. She was willing to take the heat and the judgment upon herself so that those, those chicks could be set free. That's all Psalm 91 is saying. When it comes, I want you to hide under me. And in his power, in his strength, he can bring something out of that experience that otherwise isn't possible. And here's the truth. Around you, as we have picnics today and have a good time, there is this story in spades. That so many of you have the testimony of, I have walked through this and I never want to go through it again. But I'll tell you, the results of what God has done because of what I've gone through are absolutely amazing. And I know him more. I sense his love and I've experienced his nearness in a way that I've never experienced before. Hey, when trials come, would you recognize it cannot mean that God doesn't love you? Would you recognize that when trials come, it can't mean? The, the cross doesn't explain why things happen necessarily, 
But it does say it cannot mean that God doesn't love you because if he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, why will he not also with him freely give us all things? It's in Christ that God transforms us and then through trials continues to refine us as long as we trust him. Let me pray for us. Father, I do not know the stories of those that are present here today, and I cannot imagine. I can't imagine the heartbreak. I, I, I could picture just for a moment all of our stories and all of those moments of darkness, the terror at night, just on reel after reel, the hours and hours that in each person in this room we have walked through in fear, and yet you've called out to us and you've said, I want to take that on myself. I want to absorb the brokenness, the shame, the guilt, the things that we have done in the dark. Lord Jesus, you have died for our sins so that we can simply say to the Father, accept me because of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Father, I'm not coming to you because I got it together. And I'm not coming to you because I've lived a, a perfect life. I'm simply clinging to the life that is in Christ Jesus, that he lived the life I should have lived. He's died my death, and because of that, I am adopted as a child of God. Father, I pray for those that are walking now through the valley of the shadow of death. In Jesus' name, would you simply pronounce over them that you are with them. You have not abandoned them. You have not forsaken them. And if they would just just lean in, not on their own understanding, but in all their ways acknowledge you, Father, would you begin to make those paths straight? Would you show them that there's something in the future, something that you're working out is far better than anything we could imagine? And Lord, would you give them the confidence that you long to comfort them and shelter them through this time? Father, thank you. Would you minister to us? And Lord, would we serve each other as we share the stories of what you've done in our life? Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we worship.